Welcome. You're listening to the CMS Podcast, where legal experts and industry leaders from around the world provide key insights on a diverse range of topics. In today's podcast, Dura Vermeer, member of the Board of Directors, Theo Winter will talk about his experience as a market party. This episode was recorded during the CMS Public Procurement Forum in Amsterdam. Please visit our podcast channel for other episodes in the series. Well, also welcome. I'm Theo Winter. I'm a member of the board of directors of, uh, of Dura Vermeer. It's a privately owned company. Uh, our turnover last year was almost the same as yours, 1.3 billion. Um, unfortunately, we don't have that many female associates as you do. <laughs> we're trying, we're trying, but it's not, we're, not, we're not there yet. Um, <laughs> anyone who wants to apply for a job, <laughs> please see me afterwards. Um, Ah, welcome. Um, uh, we do that with approximately 2,500 uh, employees. And um, just to give you an idea, um, I, I, I saw on your sheet there was no uh, uh, profit stated. But I think just to give you an idea, because it also ties in with your presentation, uh, our profit last year, which was an all-time high for Dura Vermeer, was a net profit, so no EBIT, EBITDA, EBIT, but net profit because we're privately owned, so our owner only cares about contingency and what it really delivers, was just a bit over 2%. And it was an all-time high for Dura Vermeer. As you can see, it's a benchmark almost in the Dutch industry because the last couple of years, 0.3, and that's really shameful. And that's one of the reasons something has to happen because if we have basically, statistically, one project which goes out of the rails, which, really, which we really... Well, I was going to use a word that I'm not allowed to use, I think. Um, which goes really bad. We need at least 20 to 25 good running projects to make it up. So, um, well, we discussed it a little bit beforehand, but I think your conclusion is the same as mine. Um, people matter, but so do contracts. I truly believe exactly what you say, Marianne, that uh, on the left side, uh, people are the most important thing <coughs> which make a project a success or not. But then again, people are also governed by the way the contract is written. And so if the contract does not give any um, equal opportunities on risk-rewards between contracting authorities and contractors, it's very difficult to have an open and honest discussion with each other. And I'll come back to that later, but it's also amplified by the fact that if you only have as well, there's one construction company which did last year 3.5%. Um, then they have to do something on innovation. So, and you don't have a lot of money left. If you then have one major problem on a major project as of the scale we're talking about, PPP, then the whole profit of a whole year goes down, maybe even more years than one. Um, so what I want to talk to you about is some negative experiences with DBFM, but also positive experience. Because at the moment there is a lot of DBFM bashing going around in Holland, and I think there's also positive elements within the DBFM system. Um, so apologies for the fact that these newspapers are Dutch, but I think when it's finished, it will be one of the Dutch major uh, waterworks. I think we should all be very proud of what we're building there, but at the same time, this has been um, the downfall for not only a project manager, a project director, two directors, and somebody from the board of directors, but also 
it costs a hell of a lot of money and a hell of a lot of effort to get it right again. And there are other people than me who can explain more about the reasons why it went wrong, but one of the main reasons which also happened here, which happens often in DBFM projects, is that in the tendering phase, the contractors tend to be too optimistic on the possibilities within the contractual restraints of optimizations. Another one, which basically had nothing to do with technical issues, but was a, an, it was also an experiment, by the way, already six years ago, to get early contractor involvement even before the first permits were issued. And my personal experience with this, because I, I, I was present at, at, at the start of this, um, what was really problematic is that the fact that the contracting authority thought that this could be done for a fixed price. And five years on, yeah, the builders, including the contracting authorities, saw that that was not possible. And unfortunately, prices never go down in these situations, but they always go up. And at that moment, there was no possibility anymore to do it for the same price that was politically already evaluated and budgeted. So it stopped. Now there has to be a new consultation, there has to be a new tender, which ultimately for us in Holland will cost more money. And the third one, which is not a DBFM, uh, which is uh, quite a lot in the newspapers and which you can see, well, probably not because it's below the ground at this moment, is here in Amsterdam, um, where there was a tender phase basically set that the contractors, um, I'm simplifying a bit, but the, 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 the total costs should be 1 billion plus or min minus 5%. So there was a ceiling price, but there was also a lowest price. And one of the interesting parts in this contract, which I believe is very interesting, but maybe on another contractual type of theme, is that after contract award, there was a time during which all the prerequisites and well assumptions regarding to the soil and everything which had to do with it were checked. And well, as we just read, I don't know if, oh here. Um, so basically, Let's say it was uh, uh, done. It should have been done for one billion. The asking price now is 1.5 billion, and at this moment, politically, yeah, people are asking: Are we prepared to spend 1.5 billion for a tunnel in Amsterdam? Which I think you should always do, being the second most wealthy country in the world. But it's not my part. But it's also for partly stopped. So these are all different kind of reasons why the projects are in such a bad state. So it's, it's very strange that on these, these large projects, these large-scale projects, where you think you have all the time in the world, you've got all the money, you've got a big investment, you've got everybody knows that it's, it, it's good for Holland, it's good for the region, that it's very difficult to make, as the Americans say, an honest buck. So how is this possible? Now, these are my personal views. Like Marianne said, hey, it's all personal, of course, and so not all my colleagues might agree with me, not all contracting authorities might agree with me. But these are part, I think, of the problems we are now facing. And part of it is also coming from the white paper, from uh, what Marianne said. And uh, what you see at DBFM 
is that in the, in the same paper it is stated that 63%, so two-thirds two of all the DBFM projects were mainly on price, awarded on price. There's only 13%, so one-tenth of the projects was awarded to a company which had a slightly higher price but a better quality value. And the whole idea of DBFM, which we started originally, was that contractors or contracting companies or whatever would be paid for better IDs. So that part didn't work. The second thing is then, if you look at those prices, there's a continuing debate between contracting authorities, not one, but all of them, and contractors on what is a reasonable profit. What is a reasonable contingency? If we talk about profits which are more than 3%, I can state to you, we are always in trouble. A lot of contracting authorities do not accept more than 3%, which is very strange if you also want innovation in the sector. The same holds true for contingencies. The problem with contingencies is on which should you base your contingency. If you know what you have to build, then you can have a lower contingency than if you do not know what you have to build. And then the question is, what is an acceptable contingency? Is it 10%? Is it 50%? What can it be? The second part is that, and this is changing now, this is just a statement, but this has been for a large part repaired because we see that in the large projects, not only DBFM, in the last year, all the ceiling prices which were really below present budgets have been raised by contracting authorities. So I think this is going to the right direction. But the problem is that if you start at a certain moment with a certain ceiling price and your first instant is this is never going to happen, then some parties might say, hey, we're not going to join this. We're not going to tender because the money is not enough. And what you see is you see a downgrading of everything that's not part of the direct costs, which we also do ourselves as contractors. The second reason is, this is how you do asphalt in the 70s. So there were no uh, special shoes, there were no helmets, and there were very short... Uh, Trousers. <laughs> well, at least they're not having the beer bottles because I heard that was also happening then. But what happened in a very short time, and Marnie also said, in a very short time it went basically, and I'm exaggerating very much, eh, in a large way, from the client knows all, the sort of unit rate contract stuff, like the best engineers were always based at Rijkswaterstaat, to contractor knows all, performance-based contracts, which also meant that what we saw happening very rapidly was that the client organization transforms, as it's written there, from more practical knowledge-based to a theoretical performance-based organization, procurement organization, which is fine if the market itself then also transforms into a totally engineering, procurement, construction, maintenance organization with everything that goes around. But to be honest, um, the time scales of both changes are not the same. So whereas Rijkswaterstaat is very much into the procurement and into the performance, we as contracting partners still have a lot of trouble with following up on all these contracts. So what I see at present, and this is why I'm so happy there are so many lawyers in this room, is that the risk-reward, at least from a contracting point of view, are not equally at this moment, distributed. And I think there are possibilities to change this, 
because we already see them. But just to give you a view what we think as, well, at least Dura Vermeer, but I know a lot of colleagues from Wine, uh, as unacceptable risks, which we should not take. Then I had this discussion with one of our main contract and authority directors two years ago. He said, well, if you find this is not acceptable, why the hell do you put in a tender? I said, well, if you put in every, every contract above the 50 million, those standard risks, if I don't tender, I'm out of a job. And that is a problem with dependency, like it is in Holland. And what we should not what we should not accept is technical extrapolation into the unknown. And what I mean by that is um, if we have to make something, if we have to engineer something which has never been engineered before, because one of the projects I left out because I think it's too old to mention, but it's very relevant, is the A15. The number three, uh, I think it was number three done, Balas Nedam, almost went bankrupt on one project because of the fact there was a special bridge which has to be raised within a couple of, I don't know what, seconds. Had never been done before. Contractor thought this is, po this is possible. In the end, it's still, it is still not going in, into those few seconds at the moment, which means that they had to spend lots of money and lots of time um, to, get their, to get their money back. And I think that as soon as something is unknown, then you don't know what your contingency money can be or has to be or your risk money has to be. And at that moment, I think you have to have, a, but I think somebody else will talk about it, a two-phase project. Together, work out those major risks and then set the price. The same is for subsoils. I understand that the contracting authority does not know what's in the ground. But why should it be my risk that if something is in the ground, that I have to stop my work? Basically, it's a, it's a strange phenomenon. So I think this is not acceptable. Um, permitting issues. I completely agree that we have to do everything in our, what we can do to get the permits on time. But if they are not on time, or if there is some organization which wants something else, which often happens to give you a permit, then that cannot be a contractor's risk. At this moment, it is a contractor's risk. And all the UFMs, fortunately, is now limited to a number of weeks or a number of months. <coughs> but to give you an example, some of the major DFM projects, we are talking about between four and eight million euros only on staff costs per month. So if you have six weeks delay, you have a lot of problems. Correctness of technical tender data. This is something which is not happening with Rijkswaterstaat. We discussed it a long time ago, and it's not our problem anymore. But in this very nice uh, community in which we're standing, Amsterdam, we are responsible for everything that they deliver. Now, this, is, this is, from a legal point of view, this is very interesting. So somebody gives you something and says, so if you want to tender, it's your responsibility. And by the way, you're not allowed to get onto the site to check it. If you don't like it, don't give us a price. It's interesting, to say the least. <laughs> Indexation. One of the reasons that we um, did not make a profit on the A6 was that we lost 1.6 million on um, things related to oil, diesel. We had no problems in the first two years, but after four years, the indexation went sky high, and we didn't get paid for it. And that's also a problem on how do you, as a contractor, deal with this. 
And the last one that's one of my favorites is um, in um, the MTC is a maintenance company in a uh, DBFM contract. What you see is that the amount of money going around into a maintenance company is, is, is often not even one-tenth of the EPC contract. But penalties are often of the same scale. So what happens, I had one of those projects myself. We had a situation where we had to do 18 years of maintenance, and if one of the drawbridges was stuck for more than 15 minutes twice a year, the whole yearly profit was gone. And of course, I also signed up for that. And then all else is acceptable for me, for us as a contractor. Because basically, what we always say, it is insurable. If something is not insurable, I think we should not accept it anymore. Um, so that's my footnote. That's why we're a contractor. Because we love building things. We love engineering things. We love doing it together with contracting authorities. Fortunately, we also have some nice relatives in the legal world, but we don't really want to make too much use of it. Sorry, Petra. Um, so what could be a solution? I just listed some things which are, uh, in my opinion, what we experience right now as uh, positive uh, elements. And of course, there are also, I know of alliances which are not working very well, but we are at the moment in one which is okay, which we can really discuss with, in this case, with ProRail, um, um, uh, we, we discuss basically um, the, the, the good thing of an alliance is that you talk about risk rewards in a very early stage. And you discuss is it a contractor problem or is it a contracting authority problem. And basically, also one which I did a large time ago, a long time ago, with a former colleague of mine, I think if you discuss this in a way like you told us you should, Marianne, then I think this is possible. Best value procurement. I am a big fan of best value procurement, as long as you do it the way it is supposed to be. And of course, that's debatable, but there has been one sort of Bible of best value procurement. If you follow that, then it works perfectly. And the good thing of best value procurement is that the cost of tendering are very low. And there is a, a period of time, a rather long period of time, in which you as a contractor can prove that the things you state in your tender documents you are able to do. And in those periods, you can discuss and diminish all the relating risks which I talked about before with the contracting authority. And the good thing is, if it doesn't work, then the contracting authority can say, we're not going on, but also vice versa, the contractor itself can say, this is a big risk. I took a risk for an alternative solution. It's not going to work. Please go on with number two. And the last one, this is the one which is basically a fit-for-purpose contract, is that you just say, um, on some, there's an, a contractor involved, and at that moment, for a mutual risk and reward, and remunerated, the whole engineering phase is done. And at the moment, at the end, when the engineering phase is done, only then is the contract sum fixed for execution. <coughs> this means that for the execution part, there are nearly no risks, and all the big risks are taken aboard in the first phase, which we're doing right now. So in a sense, best for projects. So in conclusion, I would say there's not one solution. Of course, there's not one solution. There's no, never one solution. But I think that the whole DBM or DBFM bashing at the moment mm, should be revisited. Um, I think there should always be a shared risk and reward. 
element in it. It should always be, this really helps, a shared contingency fund. Even if it's just one million on, on a 500 million project, it gives people something to work together and they are allowed to put funds somewhere which they both like into the environment. There has to be, uh, Marianne, thanks, a shared commitment. Then, only then, you can talk about the best person for the job and not the other way around, because different contract types take different persons. And only then you can talk about project startups, project follow-ups, etc., which I do believe in, but all the other parts have to be fulfilled. That's it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CMS podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter and stay up to date on infrastructure, projects and public procurement from a legal perspective. You can find a link to the subscription form in the description. Until next time.